Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. It's October, my favorite month of the year, because I can unabashedly focus on my passion for horror. Last podcast, I looked to Italian horror, and I highly recommend you check that out because it includes interviews with Lucio Fulci's daughter and actress Catriona McCall, as well as with Fulci's frequent composer, Fabio Frizzi. For this podcast, I turned to one of my horror obsessions, Clive Barker. A year ago, I posted an archive interview with Barker for episode number 35. Barker's a marvelous interview. He's articulate, witty, charming, and the last person you'd ever suspect could imagine such horrific worlds as Hellraiser. The box. You opened it. We came. It's just a puzzle box! Oh no. It is a means to summon us. Who are you? Explorers in the further regions of experience. Demons to some, angels to others. Barker's a renaissance man. He's an artist, novelist, and filmmaker. I came to his work through his films, specifically Hellraiser. I saw that film in 1987 and fell in love with his take on the genre, which combined beauty with terrifying body horror. Hellraiser, a film by Clive Barker. We'll tear your soul apart. One of the things I love about Barker is that he never judges his characters, but rather he tries to capture the essence of what it is that fascinates us about horror. He's also able to evoke sympathy for unlikely protagonists. In his book Cobble, the source material for his film Nightbreed, he introduces us to Midian, a nether world of monsters that he makes human and sympathetic. Who's buried in Midian? Ain't nothing but dead folk. Somewhere, (laughs) hidden from sight, closer than you might think, is a place that's not on any map. Midian. Something's breathing there. It looks a lot like hell, but they call it home. There goes the neighborhood. They're not pretty. They're not neighborly. You'll come back now, you hear? They're not even human. But this time, they're the good guys. From the imagination of Clive Barker comes Nightbreed. You can't go down there! They have only one enemy. A beast called Man. Sworn to destroy the Nightbreed. Sounds like we're going head-to-head with the devil himself. And only one chance. A man. Called Boone. It's time to fight! Who get him, boys? I'll kill you! What chance have we got? They're armed. So am I. Out of your deepest fears and your darkest fantasies, Clive Barker brings you a startling new breed of adventure. I won't let you down. Nightbreed. At last, the night has a hero. Outstanding. James Whale was the first filmmaker to really make us feel sympathy for the monster with his 1931 Frankenstein. But Barker took it to new levels with Cobble and then with the film Nightbreed. For Nightbreed, Barker cast fellow horror filmmaker David Cronenberg as a serial killer. Well, when you imagine yourself being taken away to this invented city, to Midian, what sins were you going to be forgiven? Are we back in therapy, doctor? They were just dreams. Midian doesn't exist. Monsters don't exist. But murder does, Aaron. Murder is very, very real. It might start in the mind, but then it changes to flesh and blood. Two days ago, the police brought me some photographs. They wanted to know if any of my patients was capable of doing what's in those photographs. I'm going to show them to you. And when I was going through my archives, I found this interesting piece of tape with Cronenberg talking about how he and Barker came at horror from different perspectives. Here's an excerpt from that 1996 interview. Clive's approach to what he does is so different from mine. 
Mm-hmm. It was even apparent on Nightbreed when I was making suggestions, you know, about the script, and I thought, you know, Clive, this doesn't really make any sense. He didn't care that it didn't make any sense, <laughs> and I did. I like sort of the the logic of madness. Is We both are interested in madness, but I, I'm particularly intrigued by the logic of madness, the rationale of madness that we that we make. So that I'm interested in Descartes' theories, you know, philosophy, because it's sort of so logical it's insane, and I... And I I like that. Clive is totally into this uh, it, uh, completely sort of invented spiritual other world stuff, which I actually don't like. I mean, I don't like his stuff. I mean, I, but it's not something as a as a director that I would really be interested in doing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It just doesn't resonate for me in that sort of socket and plug way. You see, so the mm-hmm. chances that Clive would write something that I would be interested in directing are slim, just because of that. Would you act for him again? Oh, of course. He was, <laughs> he was lovely as a director. He was he was great, just great fun, great set. You know, he was, I think he was a little overwhelmed on that film because it, it grew. It was supposed to be quite a small film, and then it became quite a big, heavy-duty effects film. Mm-hmm. And I think he was a little overwhelmed, not that he ever showed it, because he was always incredibly sweet and funny on the set, you know. So, <laughs> uh, no, I like uh, Clive. I consider a friend, you know, and... and uh, And I think he's extremely talented. For the rest of this podcast, I speak with Mark Allen Miller about Barker and about finding all the elements to assemble the director's cut of Nightbreed. When released in 1990, studio meddling caused the film to not be what Clive Barker had envisioned. It wasn't until 2012, after Miller found work print footage that had been thought lost, that a cobble cut was screened at film festivals to generate interest in restoring the film to what Barker's original vision was. Then in 2014, the director's cut was completed, much to Barker's joy. Here's my interview with Mark Allen Miller. So Nightbreed is a film that I adore. And I was so excited that when I was in London, I got an opportunity to see the cobble cut. And now you have a director's cut version. Tell me how this whole process started. How did you get involved working on this Nightbreed revision? It's a, it's a long, winding road, and I'm so glad you asked, because I'm always happy to talk about it. I actually befriended uh, Clive uh, in, a, in, a, in a strange series of events and uh, had started working for him as, uh, as a sort of unpaid intern. And in hanging out with Clive, you can't really uh, not be inspired by him just because of who he is. And the more time I spent with him, the more I wanted to know about him. So I would go home after working all day, uh, learning about him, and then and, and go home and, and do more research so that I could uh, so I could learn even more. I w- it was a full immersion uh, internship, and in the in that research, I discovered through IMDb that uh, Nightbreed had not been the film that he wanted it to be. And it was when I checked, like, the IMDb message boards, I, I started to see that there was all this talk about when the director's cut would come out and all the scenes that were missing. And since I had a direct line to Clive, I just thought, well, you know, if everyone seems to have a projected release date. Might as well ask the man himself if, if this is all true and if it is, when it'll be. And because, and, you know, more than anything, I just want to see it. So I sent him a text message and asked him if it were true and when the, the possible release date might be. And he fired back a, a flurry of texts almost immediately, just saying, "My God, Mark, yes, you know." And this is this is an old wound, and there are many, many minutes of footage that are gone, uh, but nobody knows where they are, and, and it's not for want of trying. We've we've done everything we could, and, and it's just it's just been a completely fruitless endeavor up to this point. So I responded with a with a simple "Hey, uh, would you mind if I gave it a shot?" And he said, "Absolutely, please go for it. I, it, it would be my honor." And you know, when Clive Barker gives you a, a, a sort of imperative like that, you, you can't help but kind of sink your teeth in and, and not let go until till it's done. And so it was this very Byzantine road that uh, ended six years later with eventually the Blu-ray release. But, uh, you know, there were, there were a lot of twists and turns in between, and it's only, it's only now that we're able to, uh, to talk about all of them. And were you involved in that cobble cut? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's 
how the original, that's sort of how the grassroots movement to get the film released on Blu-ray happened. I started the journey by interviewing a few people that Clive set me up on interviews with. One of the people was uh, Mark Goldblatt, who was the editor that Morgan Creek, who's the production company on Nightbreed, uh, they brought him in to replace Clive's editor, Richard Martin. Uh, and it was Goldblatt who told me that there's probably some VHS footage somewhere of the dailies and maybe a work print, uh, something like that. So while I was calling Morgan Creek and storage facilities and stuff like that, asking if they had any, you know, old canisters lying around Mark's Nightbreed, uh, I interviewed uh, Goldblatt who told me about this. And it was, I think it was just, maybe it was timing. Uh, I'm not sure what it was, but, you know, there were a lot of sort of benchmarks along this journey that are a little bit too serendipity could be to be labeled accidents. But while I was doing that, after Goldblatt mentioned it, there was a sort of spring cleaning happening at, the, at Clyde's offices. And in the back of a storage closet, we found uh, a bunch of old tapes that just said Nightbreed. Since I was at that point dubbed the Nightbreed Detective, I was given the tapes to take home and watch, but I couldn't watch them because they were palette-encoded. So we sent them to his archivists in London, and they reported back that, yes, there was, there was missing footage, footage that no one had seen in 25 years, and it was amazing. And so, you know, we initially screened just that VHS that we found at a, at a convention in uh, Indiana for Horror Hound magazine. And it was from that that we started to get a little more attention and some people started coming around. Friends of the company, uh, a gentleman named Russell Charrington in particular, asked if he could see the footage. And he'd been a longtime friend of the company. And, you know, obviously uh, we said, sure, you know, by all means, uh, you know, those, those who are is sort of in the inner circle should absolutely be able to see this. And uh, he went and gave that VHS footage to a friend of his named Jimmy Johnson, who's an editor. And Jimmy put the missing footage and intercut it with the Warner DVD that was available at the time. That had, it was just the theatrical cut but he put the pieces of the VHS footage in where they were supposed to be. And from that emerged this extra cut, which was, it was really rough. Uh, and it was, you know, you saw it, it was 25 year old degraded VHS footage that had been sitting in a storage unit for, for you know, just as long. So the audio was bad. The footage was bad. The, it, some of the scenes were, were barely decipherable, uh, and it, it wasn't really in the proper order. It was just this sort of work print fan edit that got made, and and we were able to tour it around uh, to enough people. It seemed like every screening that happened, another person heard about it and reached out to us and asked if they could screen it. And so by the end of the run, we had screened on, you know, half the continents out there. <laughs> And, uh, and and there were articles in Total Film and Empire and Entertainment Weekly and all this stuff, and we were getting all this attention. So finally, you know, Morgan Creek uh, realized that there, there actually is something to this film, and they sort of joined the hunt with us in searching for uh, the missing actual uh, film negative. Remind people why the film was not what Clive Barker had intended it to be. Because this was back, it was made in 1990. What was released to the mainstream and theatrical wasn't exactly what he had in mind. Right, not not remotely. It's based on a book that he wrote uh, of the same name. And it it the story in the, in the novel is not what the theatrical cut is, you know, that, that, that exists. And legend has it that the studio signed on. Uh, you know, he's Clive Barker. He's sort of the height of his fame. Uh, we'll we'll take we'll take whatever you want to give us, uh, essentially. And then they start seeing dailies, and it, it's not the film that they thought they were going to get. It's this kind of high fantasy with you know with outlandish elements. And I think the studio got spooked. 
They wanted, you know, they wanted Hellraiser. They wanted something spooky. They wanted something that would get under your skin, not this completely different fable, you know, that was an allegory and, and had a, a moral and all this stuff. And so they started to ask Clive to change things. And he fought back, uh, but, you know, started uh, shooting alternate scenes and trying to acquiesce to their demands, but still try to maintain his vision. But ultimately, by the end of it, they they took away, they, they sort of removed him from the process entirely and changed, uh, you know, the voices of some of the performers. Uh, they changed uh, whole scenes. They, they gouged the ending. There's a whole subplot where uh, Boone's therapist is trying to set him up for these murders, and that's lost. And, and, and it's just, it becomes this kind of hodgepodge of what might have been. And so the theatrical cut is kind of half what Clive wanted and half this studio-mandated shock film. And, and so it, it's, it just ends up being in this middle ground that no one quite understood. I mean, it's still, you know, there was still nothing quite like it, which is why I think the fans endured. But there was always the film it was supposed to be. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what we set out to, to make happen. Well, from our perspective today, sometimes I think it's hard for people to remember when a film came out, how the mood was different or how the studios were looking at films different, because kind of the twist to this when it came out was that the monsters that look bizarre are the heroes, which nowadays we kind of feel like, oh, what's the big deal about that? Look at all the films, you know, Guillermo del Toro makes. But back then it was much more... It, I mean, it, it kind of broke the rules much more than it would for something coming out now. Yeah, it was definitely ahead of its time in that way. You you hit the nail on the head. The, if you look at the ad campaigns, you know, it shows Boone's girlfriend, Lori, uh, with this terrified expression on her face. And, you know, Lori, Lori was wrong. Lori will find out. And, and, and you know, there's no reason to fear the night and all this stuff. When you know, when you watch the film, the monsters are the heroes, and it's it's the establishment that are the villains. And so the ad campaign doesn't even really match the film that they created. But you know that was Clyde's intent was to he he always identified with the monsters. He always grew up loving the monsters, so he wanted to make a love letter to monsters. And yeah, now like that's that's uh, everything that comes out. You know, you have. You have your twilights and all this stuff, and there, there's even a, I wrote an essay in an annotated version of the uh, of the novel, where at one point I, uh, I I I sort of pivoted in my in my opinion of the film, where originally it was it was just sort of the fan quest that I was on. I just wanted to see the footage uh, until one of the the first time I saw the film on the big screen. And and uh, I'm seeing the ending. It's and it's still the degraded VHS footage, but it's in front of it's you know it's on this huge screen uh, at the TIFF light box in Toronto, uh, and and the house is packed and people are dead silent. And it's this scene where Boone and Laurie are on a hill and she's dying, and she's asking him to give her eternal life so that they can be together forever. I belong to the breed now. And make me belong to. They made you one of them. You can do the same for me. I can't. But I want to be with you. I'll come back for you when I'm finished. When's that going to be? When I'm 90 and you're still the way you are? I went through hell to find you, and you're just... just gonna walk away. Just go. Just go. Get out of here! What do you want? Go!
Please. Die. Then do something, damn it. powerful film than than I had even given it credit and and from then on out it you know the, the mission switched to wouldn't it be cool to get this out to no this is this movie is is so far ahead of its time and so groundbreaking that I think it's important that it comes out talk a little bit about the changes that occurred between the cobble cut and the director's cut because if people have seen the cobble cut what should they be expecting from this director's cut they should be expecting clarity. Obviously, it's uh, it is a Blu-ray and it's it's uh, it's a full restoration. The we also managed to work miracles with the audio, so it's true 5.1, uh, which is amazing because we had this guy named Justin Cruz who basically took the because we all we had was all we were able to find was film footage. We didn't find any original audio files, so the audio files we worked with came from the VHS source. And Justin was able to to create a 5.1 track from that VHS audio somehow. The man is a wizard. Uh, but aside from technical specs, it is novel from start to finish. Everything is in there, uh, and it's and it's just gorgeous. There, there's you know subtleties. There are character developments. There's a musical sequence. Uh, there's there's more monsters. And and there's a lot of heart, and it's this gorgeous story that just comes full circle. And I'm so honored to be a part of it because, you know, not only do I think it's an important film, not only do I think it's a great film, it's if even if I had nothing to do with it, I, it would still be one of my favorite films. Every time it's on, I just I I have to watch it. I'm you know my attention is is immediately uh, engaged, and you know it's just there's there's nothing quite like it. If memory serves me right, the cobble cut was very long, like three hours or two, two and a yeah, half. Yeah, it was. Eventually, we ended up calling that the kitchen sink version <laughs> because there were there were a lot of uh, scenes that kind of doubled up. I mean, there were even characters that died twice. There's uh, there's a sequence where uh, Captain Eigerman, who's sort of the head of the of the, the police department, and this you know just marauding uh, jackass who storms the battlefield and 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 just lays waste to all these innocent people. Uh, but he he dies twice in it. Um, I, I believe we kept both endings. There's one which was the studio mandated ending where. Uh, the, the priest uh, comes uh, to the shrine uh, of Decker, the, the villain, and, and and Decker comes alive, and the camera sweeps back. And that was a theatrical version, which Clive had never intended uh, to be to, to be a part of the film. And you know, the real ending is this is this far subtler thing where the priest and Igerman get together and plot uh, their their revenge on the Nightbreed, and then before. The priest uh, leaves. He chokes Igerman to death, and as Igerman's body, you know, falls to the floor, the priest walks out of the out of the chapel. It's this it's this far subtler and creepier sequence, but I think we had both in at one point, and it just it just became this work print. Might even be putting it kindly. It was just every bit of footage we could find had been thrown in, just so people could see what what you know what could have been. Uh, and when we set out to edit the what would ultimately become the director's cut, my uh, editor uh, Andrew Furtado, who was given a month to do this and and put it all together, again uh, another wizard. I don't know how he did it, but, uh, but he's amazing. Took what took all the sequences, mashed them up for film film to VHS, and then systematically started putting the story together from start to finish. 
And as we, as we found pieces, we would bring them to Clive, ask him where they went, and if they, if they stayed or if they left. And we ended up cutting, I think, a good 20 minutes from the length of the work print. Uh, and, and what we have is a much tighter, much leaner, and much more linear uh, and coherent story. So Clive was very active in this director's cut in terms of what stayed in and what was taken out. Oh, absolutely. There were, there were even some um, uh, controversial choices. There's In the book, uh, Decker the villain, uh, his mask talks to him as if, you know, it's, it's this compulsion that he feels to kill people. And it's always the mask that is that's sort of making it happen, uh, where he'll open up a briefcase and the mask is there telling him, you know, do it. It feels good. Let's, let's, let's do a little more. Uh, and there are some there are some scenes in the movie where we get the mask talking to Decker. This was in the work print. We found some of these scenes, and as as we were watching it, you know, we would take every every time we had a new cut, we would bring it to Clive. He would we would watch it start to finish. He would give notes the entire way through, and then we would start again the next day uh, and just work our way through. So we ended up watching the film probably a hundred times in those thirty days, just to get it as tight and as as perfectly as Clive wanted it to be. And it, one of the one of the more startling decisions that Clive made was to cut that sequence because it didn't really it, it was it was cool and it was this nod to the novel, but there wasn't really any precedent for it in the in the film. You know, you see Decker killing a lot before we get to that sequence, and so by the time we get there, Clive didn't feel that it made sense to keep it in just to keep it in as his his. You know, uh, one of his great quotes is everything in service to the story. And so he felt what was in service to the story there was, you know, leave that out. But I think it can be seen. I think that sequence is actually available on the uh, bonus content. And it's a cool little scene to see. But there's a lot of stuff like that. And there's even, it, we didn't just take stuff out. We actually put some stuff in. There's a whole uh, prophecy element to the film that didn't even make it into the, into the work print that we've discovered through editing and through reading the old script and reading the novel. It was this thing that we just kind of had to tease out. It, it's what ends up being the last shot of the film. And this is another one of those sort of synchronicity kind of moments where, you know, everything was kind of too perfect to work out this way. The film references this prophecy uh, at the beginning and, and, and is this touchstone throughout various parts of the film. And then finally, what happens is the, the sort of old god that, uh, that runs the Nightbreed tells us that the prophecy is now complete and sort of the second phase of this story is about to begin. And when he says that, we see our two heroes, Boone and Lori, standing on a hill. And the last shot is supposed to be from that hill we dissolve to this mural, which, uh, which is how the film begins and was supposed to bookend the film. You know, the, the, the opening credit sequence is a mural of the Nightbreed uh, throughout their travels history. And the final shot of the film was supposed to be Boone and Laurie joining the ranks of all the people we saw on the mural in the beginning. But that shot was never uh, created because by the time it was time to shoot that, Morgan Creek had moved on uh, and wanted, you know, a different kind of film, and so that set was destroyed. Clive said he came to the, the set one day and found that the mural had just been demolished. And so we never, we never found that um, uh, in the footage. And what ended up happening was I was just talking with, uh, with a, uh, our, a co-worker who's he's, uh, my writing partner, and he, he uh, runs things with us at uh, Clive's company, Seraphim. His name's Christian Francis. And he was involved in the process all the way, too. He built all the websites for uh, the screenings. He did all the limited posters for every every uh, you know, festival we went to. And I was telling him where that we had hit a wall and that there was absolutely there was we, we've scoured the footage. You know, it was like 16 hours of, of raw footage and there was not even a glimpse of this this final image. And he said, hold on a second. And 15 minutes later, he sent me a high-resolution image of exactly what I had described to him. He had taken pieces of the mural, made one uh, in Photoshop, and, and created exactly what was always supposed to be there. And we put it in, 
and it and it was perfect. It was the film from start to finish as it was supposed to be. And we and that night we screened it for Clive, and that was the first time that he watched Nightbreed and he cried. Like it was there. There, there was no way to describe how it all came together or the feeling of watching Clive finally see the film he always wanted to see. But it, it, you know, it was it was this incredible group effort that. Uh, where none of it would have happened if it weren't for the the the, the labor of, of of a thousand people wanting to make this happen. So you know, there's there's a lot of stuff in the film that uh, that wasn't there before. You brought up the character of uh, Decker, who is played by a filmmaker himself, uh, David Cronenberg. Indeed. The footage you added, there's not a ton of new footage with him when I saw the cobble cut. I haven't had a chance to see the director's cut yet because it's going to be screening here in San Diego on the big screen, so I decided to wait. I look forward to your thoughts. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it on the big screen, just like I saw the cobble cut on the big screen. So, uh, But you didn't add a lot of footage of him, but you added some really great moments that fleshed out that character in interesting ways exactly yeah that was some of the that was some of the more bizarre choices that uh, that were made by the studio i mean you have you have this incredible you know uh, iconic figure playing this this truly evil character and to just cut out all the stuff that that really makes you hate him didn't make any sense but there is there's this whole there's this whole subplot that's been added where you realize that he is the villain behind all of this. He's the mastermind that that this sick psychiatrist who who tricks his patient into believing that he is committing murders just so so he himself can continue to kill without prejudice. I mean, it's it's. It's a genius invention, and it was completely gone in the theatrical cut, and I'm, I'm so happy that it's back. In putting the director's cut together, did Clive talk at all about working with Cronenberg and about that character in the film? Absolutely. Uh, he had, it was, it was a pretty amazing time for him. Uh, I, and what was most interesting, I think, was the fact that he and Cronenberg had only known each other in passing, so it wasn't this you know kinship of, of fellow horror directors uh, appearing in each other's films. Uh, Cronenberg had just done Dead Ringers at Morgan Creek, and so uh, one of the one of the producers uh, on Nightbreed suggested to Clyde, "Hey, you know, we just did this thing with uh, with Cronenberg." Uh, it, it seems like you guys are, are simpatico. What if I set up a meeting? And from that meeting, uh, Clive offered Cronenberg the, the role. And, and, I'm, and I'm so happy that happened. Well, it's ironic or funny that I've, I've been going through some archive interviews I have, and I had just found one of David Cronenberg where he talked about working on the film. And one of the things he mentioned is that he and... Barker actually don't have kind of like similar points of view on types of horror that they enjoy. So he said it was an mm-hmm. interesting, he said, you know, sometimes he would make suggestions and I would just <laughs> say no. And, but they respected each other, but they, he said like, no, I, you know, like I would never direct a Clive Barker, you know, a, a film from a Clive Barker book. Cause that's just not my type of horror. But he said, you know, sure, sure. He, he goes, I would act for him anytime. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a fascinating combination because in so many ways it makes so much sense that they would that they would pair up, but uh, at the same time, no, they they write completely different horror. So uh, it's 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 two titans coming together to make something completely different, and it's you know I'm again I'm I'm happy it happened. <laughs> You said you started working for Clive Barker as an unpaid intern. So what was it about his work and about his particular brand of horror that attracted you so much? The danger, uh, I think, is the best is the best way to explain it. You know, there I grew up loving horror films. So I was so he was already on my radar as this horror titan. But there was something about what he did that really got to me. 
I was able to to just devour horror wholesale. Whatever I could put in front of my face, I would I would just gobble it up. And it didn't matter, you know, how dark it was, how violent it was, how gory it was. I just I just wanted more horror all the time. And for some reason, when I got to Clive, I it, it, like that's what that's the only time I really got scared. I mean, I, I watched some of the weirdest horror movies when I was when I was you know, I wasn't even a teenager yet. I think I saw Eraserhead when I was twelve, and Jacob's Ladder around the same time. And you know, it, I, it could be argued that that was too soon, but uh, but I still I still enjoyed them. I enjoy them on a different level now. But at the time, you know, the, it, it was this uh, very unique experience for me. But for all the horror I watched at a young age, I didn't see Hellraiser for the first time until I was 25. It, it just, the idea of it, what I saw, what I heard just seemed too much for me. So I, like I had, basically I feel like I had to graduate to, uh, to, to, to Clyde. And so he was always this kind of upper level, uh, mind to me. And, then after you know, after I graduated to the films, I realized he was a novelist, and that's that's when I really began to see what he was about. And I I started reading his stuff, and it was a magica that was kind of the the call. That was my on the road, if you will. That was the thing that changed everything for me. And from that point on, I I just I knew I needed I needed to know everything about this guy. I needed to read everything he'd written. And, and then when I heard that, you know, I, I could have the chance to meet him, I, I did everything I could to make it happen. Well, and for me, one of the, at least for the films, one of the kind of perverse attractions is it's horror. And there's also this perverse kind of beauty to it that yes. makes you feel yeah, a little a guilty about it. Yeah, films that, that you don't, that you don't get in a lot of horror. It's, there's, he, you know, he's only directed three films. And none of them are like the other, and none of them are like anything else that's ever been made. And so, for that reason alone, I think he, you know, completely deserves his his place in the canon. But you're you're absolutely right. There's this there's this gracefulness and this sensuality that is, for some reason, when you pair it with such visceral horror, it just it it, it lives inside you, <laughs> and it and it just. It, and it stays there, and it's it's fantastic, and it's terrible. Hellraiser, I remember, was just, it was such an amazing film to see. And it it was very much something like, you haven't seen anything like it before, and you haven't seen anything exactly like it since. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's there's still nothing quite like it. Even the other Hellraiser films aren't like it. It's, it's, a, it's a singular vision. If people aren't choosing to see... Nightbreed, the director's cut on a big screen, they can get it on Blu-ray, and there's also a commentary track with it, correct? That is correct. A commentary track that uh, Clive and I recorded together in his in his writing room, uh, and we also uh, we won uh, we won an award for it. Little known fact: uh, the the much lauded uh, Rondo Horror Award. I'm, I'm sitting in my home office looking at it right now, and I uh, I, I feel like a proud papa. And what kind of a commentary track is it? Are you, are both of you talking about what's been added, what's been taken away? Or are you commenting on just the story itself? It's pretty much everything. It's us talking about what what had been taken away, what was taken from him on set, uh, things that the actor said to him uh, during that time, and then him seeing you know, the, the things cut together. Uh, and just reacting. A lot of it is this, it's this very real-time reaction to, to the film because it was still new to him. You know, he'd, he'd only seen, he'd seen the various cuts, but he'd only seen the final version once or twice before then. And so it's still, you get a lot of him just stopping and, and, and watching this film play out that, you know, that he waited 25 years to see finally happen. And so it was, it's, I, I think, I think, if I may, uh, if if you'll allow, I think you know there it's uh, it it is an award-winning commentary track. It's certainly one of the most emotional ones uh, I, I've I've ever been a part of. 
And what do you hope uh, for the future of this? Do you hope that it gets screened more on large screens at festivals and maybe even Midnight Circuit? Absolutely. I, I want this thing to live in perpetuity. I mean, I, I've met so many people on the road while screening the different versions of the film that it, it completely changed my life. I, I met uh, people that uh, saw the, the, the theatrical version, you know, opening weekend, and it was their birthday, and it just happened to coincide with their birthday again at the, at the uh, convention, and they told me what the film means to them, and People with would show me their nightbreed tattoos, and there's one man I met in Toronto told me he he went and saw the film alone, and it was his birthday present to himself. And it, you know, it, it, the movie means so much to so many people that I I would be happy if I never made another film again and just got to tour nightbreed year after year uh, and, and listening to people uh, talk about what the film means to them. It's it's really, there's been, there's no experience like it. And I know that Clive Barker has had health issues recently. We've missed him at many conventions in recent mm-hmm. years. And how is he doing now? He's doing really well these days. Uh, the, the the health issues that, uh, that plagued him really seem to be dissipating. Uh, and and we're really grateful for that. You know, he, he was in a coma a few years ago. And he'd sort of been in and out of the hospital since then. But uh, of late, he has been steadily better and better. And I've seen him uh, at work writing novels. He's currently writing five novels at the same time. Uh, and uh, back in meetings with uh, with people and just pitching ideas again. And it's it's good to see him have that that creative spark and that that lust for life again it's uh, it's been it's been a really good year do you think we'll see another film directed by him i think that is a distinct possibility uh it is it is definitely something he talks about there are a lot of books that he has to finish there's uh three three he's written three aberrant books uh and he's to finish two more He's written two art books, uh, and he's to finish one of those. And he's and he's written a book called Galilee, and he's also working on the sequel to that. And so I know he wants to get all the sequel, all the book sequels done first. But in the meantime, he does talk a lot about uh, returning to directing and what that would look like. And that's that's a pretty exciting conversation to be a part of. Yes, as someone who <laughs> as someone who loves film above all else, I mean that's that's my passion it's like he has so few films that he's directed and i just want to see like a bigger collection yeah the the three barker films are so amazing that you just you can't help but sit back and go i need more i need more in my life yes so i hope i hope that with all those other projects demanding his attention that he finds some time to squeeze in a film as well I'll tell him. I'll let him know. Well, I also had the opportunity to see some of his artwork recently at a convention. I think it was Monster Palooza or oh, yeah. Son of Monster Palooza. And I have to say, I had, I have his art books, but it was the first time I saw one of his paintings in person. It was so impressive to see the like the thickness of the paint and kind of the yeah the almost the, like the, the violent strokes. It was like I felt like I wanted to reach out and touch it. I was going like, it's not fair that you can't see that like on the printed page. Yeah, it's a it's a real experience, isn't it? There, yes. The, the there's nothing quite like uh, a Clyde Barker painting in person, and I think a lot of people don't realize the scale at which he paints too. And the canvases are as tall as uh, I'm six foot two, and I, I've stood in front of canvases that are that are easily twice my height, and it's it's amazing. And uh, and he uses whatever is in front of him. So you said, you know, there there, there seems to be this, this almost a violence to it. There is. I've watched him paint, and he he will take he he takes knives to his canvases, forks. I've seen him paint with sandpaper and paper towels and whiteout and and saline nasal spray. Uh, it, it's the, the the image that's in his head is coming at him so fast, and he needs to get it out so he can get the the, the next one on a canvas at such a rate that he doesn't stop to, to, you know, to think and go, Oh, see what color next. Maybe what, you know, what, what, what paintbrush it's literally the closest thing next to him. 
he grabs and and he and he dashes it off because he has to. Uh, you know, I, I, I've I've seen him paint with palm fronds and uh, and and sticks and it's and and use cigar ash in the paint and there you know it's it's this completely raw process and it's it's so cool to see well it shows up on the canvas because you really sometimes you feel like there's actual movement i i think i even like creeped myself out at the <laughs> the one monster palooza because i had this weird sensation that like the image was moving and i was kind of looking around going like is there something like with the lights that are <laughs> oh that's fantastic she's going to love that for the record it totally moved yeah totally it totally feels that way <laughs> i i i wish you would do a documentary of him painting. I don't think I've ever seen footage of him painting. I don't know if that exists, but that sounds really fascinating. I think there's a little. We did a we did a little thing once in conjunction with DeviantArt. I'm not sure if it's still up, but I know at one point we did release a. It was maybe a, a 60 second clip of him of him painting something. Um, but yeah, I uh, I know exactly what you mean. We the the office uh, is fixed on. About fifteen hundred canvases, and there's an energy that comes off those things that is definitely palpable. You know, there's every everyone has had a, an experience at the office that they can't quite explain. <laughs> that seems quite fitting. <laughs> it makes sense, right? Well, and I also I've been listening to the Books of Blood on. Ooh. on uh, audiobooks. Um, a wise decision. Well, and also I've chosen to do this while I go to the gym to work out. And I find this perverse quality of listening to these stories about so much body horror yes. while I'm in well, the middle of a of a college gym, a university gym, where there's all these really young people super concerned about how they look. Sure, sure. <laughs> and I, I, I feel like I have this like weird grin on my face while I'm listening and working. <laughs> I I honestly can't think of a better context to listen to those audiobooks. That is fantastic. It's been fun. I I've been re-going through all of them. I think I'm on number 5 now maybe, but yeah. um but it's fabulous. So you're just walking around the gym going, you know, uh, everyone <laughs> is a book of blood, people. Once you're open, you're read. I forget there was one in particular that just was particularly appropriate to be listening to. I don't know. It was one of the more extreme ones. And I was just thinking it was like body parts moving and melding and oh, that's great. taking shape. And I thought, this is perfect. <laughs> this is why I love his work so much. Yeah. I might have to do that. <laughs> so do you have any immediate plans for the future for anything else working with him or on your own? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're we're always we're always doing something. Uh, right now, I'm not sure if there's anything I can actually discuss. Uh, we've, we've, we've closed deals on a couple of things. Um, one, uh, some movie stuff, some comic book stuff. Uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff in the works, but yeah, but I don't, I don't know if there's anything that we can actually, that we can actually mention at the moment. We will be, uh, making a few announcements at uh, Stan Lee's uh, Kamikaze on October 29th, uh, which I, hopefully by then everything will be locked down and we'll be, we'll be primed for, uh, for a big uh, worldwide uh, expose. All right, you big tease. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Lots of good stuff, I promise. That's all right. All <laughs> well, that sounds exciting. Was there any moment in particular during this process, the six-year process of putting together the Nightbreed, the various cuts, any moment in particular that really stands out as like, oh, my God, this is – I can't believe we found this or this is great that this is finally – this particular piece has come into place? Yeah, there, there are so many moments. Uh, I think uh, – one one of the big ones is is Fright Fest, which is the screening you were at, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. There, I I arrived in London and I got to the theater and saw that there was a line around the block waiting of people waiting to see Nightbreed, and it was I think that was the first time I realized that this was this was a lot bigger than you know just 
just me looking for some VHS tapes, uh, and that we, we, we actually stood a chance here to, to get this release. And then an, another huge piece was sitting in, uh, at Photochem with, uh, Cliff McMillan of Shout Factory as he and I went through, uh, boxes and boxes of actual film footage of Nightbreed. You know, that was, that was that was a moment I don't have I don't have words for. It was you know four and a half years of searching and being told no, and the footage doesn't exist, and give it up, and who cares? And well, maybe there's something to this, and yeah, I guess it seems like people care. And then I'm sure we'll get a release, but we're not we we don't know where the film footage is, so we're just going to have to try and upres the VHS footage as best we can. And then suddenly I'm sitting at Photocam and I'm actually watching this, this 35 millimeter print, uh, in, you know, come through in, in little snippets. And it was, it was it, just mental. I, I, again, I don't have the words. Uh, I, I was just speechless and, and remained speechless at that moment. And, and probably the biggest one was sitting in that room in Clive's writing room watching Nightbreed takes shape in front of him, uh, and then eventually, when it when we hit the end, and it's the film that he always wanted, and he starts crying. It was it was amazing, uh, and at at that point, uh, I after the journey had ended, and we we reached you know picture lock, and we recorded the uh, the commentary track. Uh, I've told the story before, but it's one of my favorite stories. Uh, because I never really knew how, how bad Clive felt about the whole experience. Uh, once we finished recording the commentary track, I pulled out a copy, uh, my old battered VHS copy of Nightbreed. And I put it in front of Clive and I said, now that we're at the end of this journey, would you sign this for me? And he looked me in the eye and he said, now that we're at the end of this journey, it doesn't hurt to. And I still get goosebumps just thinking about that. It was it was an insane experience, and I'm just I'm so grateful that Clive gave me the go ahead uh, that he had faith enough in me to tell me, by all means, please see what you can do, and and that uh, through the efforts of dozens and dozens of people. We're sitting here now having this conversation, and Nightbreed is again going to scream. You know, it's uh, it's a dream come true. And when did you actually record the commentary tracks? That was about probably two days after we finished uh, the final cut. It was we we had a deadline once once uh, Shout Factory had digitized all the footage and, and given it to us. We had thirty days to give them everything, and so we we just hit the ground running. We, we, we got the cut in that Clive wanted and we had, you know, hours to spare. And so we set up a, a little, uh, a podcast recording session because the, the editor, Andrew also does podcasting. Uh, and so he just, he, we ran everything into Clive's room. We set up some microphones, Andrew recorded the commentary on his laptop while we watched the movie on Clive's computer. And then we rushed everything off to shout factory. And what year was that? That was, I believe, uh, I want to say early 2014. Okay. Yeah. And did you have to do any, like, crowdfunding to get this done? No, uh, which, which is, the I think, the strangest thing. We did, we did a lot of sort of crowdsourcing uh, in a lot of ways, but, but not in a financial capacity. Uh, a lot of it was just, us giving regular updates via Clive's website. And that was how everything began in the first place, is uh, Clive wanted an announcement made that I was going to be searching for the footage. And uh, as a result, you know, we, we, we put that on his website, and that's when Horrorhound reached out to us and said, if you find anything, let us know. We want first rights on screening, whatever you find. And we found it, and they interviewed me. It was the first time I'd ever been interviewed. It was awesome. Uh, and, it, and, and from that m- momentum, everything just kept picking up and picking up. And it was, you know, it, it wasn't as much of a, a roll the boulder uphill uh, as, it, as it could have been. It was everyone 
saw that this was happening, and at every turn there was someone else there to to help carry the weight. And did you ever have to tap any of the actors or anything to come in and re-record lines or? Oh, or absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh, we reconnected with a lot of the actors, uh, and this, this is uh, one of my favorite uh, favorite Nightbreed stories. I got a couple uh, in, uh, involving the actors, but one of them was when we started screening the the work print around. Uh, and Bobby and Craig Sheffer both came out to uh, North Carolina, and they got to see you know the old footage for the first time. And and I was I remember sitting next to Ann Bobby, just watching her lean forward, just completely speechless, watching all this old footage. And at the end of it, she turned to me and said, "That was like." Watching that was like living in the same house all my life, only to find that there was a whole other wing I never knew about. And so that was really cool. Uh, and then when it came time to edit everything, you know, as I mentioned, there were a lot of... Uh, the studio had, had come in and changed a lot of the voices of the actors. And so we, what we had was the original film footage, which had the, the, the studio re-recorded lines, and the VHS footage, which had the original voices. So when we put the final cut together, there was still this audio pass that was just rough as can be. And we were able to get Doug Bradley, who, uh, play, who most famously plays Pinhead. And I don't know why you would want to redub Pinhead's voice. It makes no sense to me. But in, in the theatrical version of Nightbreed, uh, uh, Doug plays this character named Lylesburg, who's sort of the, the vizier of the Nightbreed. Uh, and in the film, he's played with this very strange uh, German accent. And that's, that's not Doug at all. Uh, that's not even Doug doing a, a bad German accent. Uh, but when we put it together, some of the scenes are Doug, some of the scenes are this German actor. And so we, we reached out to Doug and said, here are the lines that uh, the German actor still says. Uh, would you mind, you know, because Doug lives in Pennsylvania uh, and we couldn't get him into the studio. We didn't have enough time. We're, you know, at this point, uh, we're, we're trying to get picture lock and we've, we're coming up against the gun and we're, we're trying to get the sound in at the same time. And so there's, it's just everything is, you know, last minute. Uh, never enough time, uh, and we just we just asked Doug, would you record some stuff on your iPhone and send it to us? And God bless him, he did. And we sent those to our audio designer, to Justin, and he put them in, and it sounds beautiful. Uh, and the the craziest thing was uh, there's a character named Rachel who, uh, in much to my surprise, does not sound like a like an old gypsy uh, in real life. And when we found some of her scenes uh, in on VHS, she has this very flat kind of Canadian accent. But in the film, she has this huge, broad, uh, Eastern European uh, gypsy kind of vibe going on. And I don't know where it came from. I don't know whose idea that was. But she sounded so different that there was nothing we had uh, we and and we couldn't we couldn't find her and we couldn't find anyone to match her voice. So rather than utilize her, uh, rather than try and go back to normal to scale her back, which we did with Doug, we had to play her up. And so uh, I, there's a I have a longtime friend named Alexis De La Rocha, who uh, she's a singer and an artist and uh, and an actress. And she, and I reached out to her because she has this sort of essence that I I don't I don't know uh, it was actually my wife's idea I was I was playing the film for her and I said I don't know what to do and my wife said ask Alexis I I totally think she could do this and uh, we we called Alexis into Andrew's editing bay and Andrew set up the microphones uh, and we played Rachel's uh, original lines where, you know, she sounds like the gypsy, and we said, okay, match this. And then we played the, the, the VHS lines, and, and so she, Alexis had to match the timing perfectly of the Rachel's, you know, flat voice and make it sound like this outlandish gypsy voice. And we had her do it a, a couple of different ways, and ultimately 
the direction that uh, ended up in the film uh, that got, you know, that got the reading we wanted was pretend you're doing an impression of the Count from Sesame Street. And that's, and that's the cut that you hear in the film. And I defy you to, to tell me which, which is which. And we're, we're getting two recordings 25 years apart, and it is impeccable. It, it was, again, it was, it was this minor miracle, and I, I can't believe the way it all came together, especially in 30 days at the end of this you know, four-and-a-half-year run. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time to, to ask the questions. I, I love this film, and I'm, I'm glad that uh, other people do, too. Thanks for checking out another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Nightbreed the Director's Cut screens October 12th at Landmark's Hillcrest Cinemas in San Diego. It's part of FilmOut's monthly screening series. Next week, the horrors continue with another podcast from Horrible Imaginings Film Festival. This time, I check in with horror authors and talk to a filmmaker about adapting horror literature. I'll play some clips from campfire readings of horror tales by their authors, including one with a mime and another couple with clowns. Turn the lights down low, make some s'mores, and take a listen next Friday. Also, a reminder to check out my 31 Days of Italian Horror on my Cinema Junkie Facebook page. If listening to Cinema Junkie is becoming something of an addiction, please consider supporting the podcast by going to kpbs.org slash feedthejunkie. And if you're looking for a cheaper way to support the show, just leave us a review the next time you're downloading a podcast on iTunes. So, till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.